Our scripture reading, before we get into our text, we're actually going to, it comes from Galatians chapter 5, we're going to return to this text at the end of our time, so this is what we're moving forward to uh, this morning. It's pretty lengthy, I'll go ahead and read it. We'll read verse 1 and then we're going to skip down to verse 13. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Down in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Again, we will return to that at the end of our time today, but before we do, today we are going to continue reading this story that we find situated near the end of the book of 1 Kings that details some of the work of the great Hebrew prophet Elijah. Elijah was a man who devoted a lot of attention to dismantling the idolatry of Baal worship, which had taken hold in Israel under King Ahab. Remember that showdown that occurred on Mount Carmel? We talked a bit about it last week where the 450 prophets of Baal fail to incinerate their bull after hours and hours of prayer, cutting themselves and being worked into a frenzy. And then Elijah offers a simple prayer. God sends fire and turns the heart of his people back to him. Now, if you remember, Elijah then goes on to kill the 450 prophets of Baal, which ends up with him fleeing for his life because Jezebel, the king's wife, is sympathetic towards Baal worship and Baal's prophets. And so we saw Elijah fleeing for his life, and as he does, in the middle of that, he decides that he'd be better off to just go ahead and die. He's had his victory. He had that extraordinary encounter 
but it was now going to end in defeat. And if it was going to end in defeat, if victory was not going to be long-lasting, he preferred the alternative. So today we're going to continue reading this story, and we find another rather mundane part of the story, and we're going to see what we might continue to learn from Elijah's life with God that could potentially translate into our lives with God. So we're going to be thinking and talking today about the illusion of perfection. The illusion of perfection. That's the title of this message. The illusion of perfection as demonstrated in the life of Elijah. At least it seems to be in this particular situation. The illusion of perfection, which is the enemy or an enemy. It is perhaps one of the primary inhibitors of personal development. So we all have vices, right? Everybody's willing to admit that. Nobody's alone in that. We all have vices. As a one on the Enneagram, it's a personality test. As a one on the Enneagram, this is a challenge for me, okay? So this is not an easy topic for me to address, but maybe I'm not alone in that. I actually think there's something important that we can all learn individually and collectively as a congregation from maybe one of the negative examples of Elijah. So we turn our attention to 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll begin where we left off last week in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, to Elijah, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, You shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. So this is a pretty violent text. If, If it wasn't violent enough with Elijah killing 450 people. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now I get that this text, this story seems like a pretty strange text to devote an entire sermon to, but it is the text assigned for today in the lectionary, so we're just going to go after it. But, But I do think that there's something remarkable that is just under the surface in this story. Uh, Before we get to that, let's continue reading. Verse 19, and hopefully we're through all of the, the names that I can't pronounce. Verse 19, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah And said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh. Sorry, I, you know, some of these stories really catch you off guard. Boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. The word of the Lord, right? <laughs> Thanks be to God. 
Thanks be to God. So once again, we find Elijah. After those extraordinary events on Mount Carmel that we discussed last week, he again is tasked with the rather ordinary and mundane, at least mundane in comparison to calling down fire from heaven to incinerate a waterlogged animal, and then moving on to kill 450 people. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. That's an exceptional day, whether good or bad or probably a bit of both. It is an unusual, dramatic, exceptional day. And now he is tasked with something so mundane and ordinary, it has to be a little disorienting. Yahweh says, go to the wilderness of Damascus, anoint a new king over Syria, anoint a new king over Israel, and anoint Elisha to take your place as the prophet of my people. I mean, this is a pretty big transition, really slowing life down a bit. Maybe we could compare it to transitioning from traveling the world as your job for work, maybe even leading people on great adventures in the outdoors or something like that, and moving from that job to working maybe in a factory where you're on an assembly line and you have a single task that you repeat 250 times a day. That, this is sort of the, the transition I imagine Elijah going through. Elijah has been a part of all of these wild dramatic encounters, and now he just has some administrative duties to partake in. And part of those administrative duties are handing over the reins of his ministry and his vocation to somebody else. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to focus today on something else that I think is going on in this crazy story. Remember in the section we read last week, two times Yahweh asks Elijah a question, and this is the question. Hey, what, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And it doesn't seem to be asked in sort of a, hey, let's catch up sort of way. We, we haven't seen each other for a while. What's going on in your life? No, what are you doing here? It, it sounds pretty corrective in nature. Why are you here and not where you're supposed to be? And both times Elijah is asked this question, his answer is the same. We read it last week. I'll read it again in verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I, I don't know about you, but when I read this, Elijah doesn't seem to be the kind of guy I want to spend a ton of time with. Seems fairly entitled here. Uh, seems to be complaining a lot. Woe is me. I've been very jealous for the Lord. I've done all of these things. I've remained faithful, and this is how I'm treated in the end. I'm about to die. After all that I've done, after all of the sacrifices that I've made, I'm the only one left who is faithful. I'm the only one who loves you, that hasn't forsaken your covenant. It is just me. I am far and away the best when it comes to following you and obeying you. I'm alone here. 
There's only a couple of problems with this attitude of superiority from Elijah. Number one, the title of the message gives it away, the illusion of superiority. It is an illusion. Now, again, this is the kryptonite for an Enneagram One. If you're unfamiliar with the Enneagram, the personality test, it, one is the perfectionist. This is the kryptonite because perfectionists thrive on the ever-elusive ideal of moral precision and trying to attain some degree of faultlessness. We look at Elijah here, and he is far from perfect, and that's fine. That's actually to be expected. Nobody is perfect, and nobody expected Elijah to be perfect. But for Elijah to claim perfection, or at the very least to claim absolute faithfulness to Yahweh, it seems a little disingenuous. Really, Elijah? You just killed 450 people. And you want to claim that you are far and away more morally superior to everybody else? And sure, maybe he believed that God had instructed him to kill the prophets of Baal. We're not told explicitly in the text. Or, or maybe he had been conditioned by his culture to believe that that was the natural and normal action you should take upon defeating the prophets of another god. But come on, Elijah. The waters are a little murkier than you're willing to admit, I think. Your, your story is many shades of gray. It is not at all black and white. And, and I think that's true for all of us. So to claim that I'm the only one, I'm the only one who is doing this right, I am the only one who sees things clearly. I'm the only one who really understands the complexities of this issue, and I have landed on the only right position. That is an illusion. And the sooner we can admit that, I think the healthier we will be personally. I think the healthier our relationships will be. So first of all, faultlessness is an illusion. But secondly... Not only was Elijah misreading himself, but he was misreading those around him as well. He was misreading the situation. He thought he was alone in his faithfulness, maybe because of some arrogance. No, nobody else could be as great as I perceive myself to be. But, but the reality is he's not even close to the only one who had remained faithful to Yahweh. He was blinded by his own dramatic encounters, maybe. The, the illusion of his personal greatness that his successes on Mount Carmel had led to. But what do we read in verse 18 of our text today? Yahweh says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So it seems not only was Elijah blinded to his own personal failings, or at least to the susceptibility to failing, thought he had it all together, but he was also blinded to the possibility that maybe he wasn't the only one who was doing things in a righteous manner. So this is the state of Elijah's heart that we find in this chapter in 1 Kings. Blinded to his own personal failings or susceptibility to failing and blinded to the fact that maybe others were living righteously and faithfully as well. It reminds me of 
something I recently heard that Bernard of Clairvaux said. Bernard of Clairvaux was a 12th century French Cistercian monk. So this was a reform group within Benedictine monasticism. So that wasn't quite intense enough. So there was this reform group that, that started. Now, Bernard of Clairvaux was just as conflicted as any of us, but he was a monk of reform. And he once wrote this, if you are not concerned that your heart may become hardened, then it already is. If you're not concerned that your heart may become hardened, it already is. This makes me think, think of Elijah in this story, but unfortunately, it, it makes me think of yours truly. It makes me think of myself. Th this is me so often. Unconcerned with the hardness of my own heart, focus more on my merits and the flaws in somebody else. And if I am not concerned about the potential of developing a hard heart, that in and of itself is an indication that my heart is already stone. Desiring excellence is not a bad thing. Maybe even desiring perfection isn't in and of itself a vice or a terrible thing. However, if that goes unchecked and maybe if it becomes our sense of self-worth, or if it begins to separate us from our brothers and sisters, even if that separation is just up here in our own minds, that desire for excellence and perfection can lead to some very unhealthy attitudes and practices. This is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that at Solid Rock we want, genuinely want to be a people of repentance, a people of Confession, repentance before God, confession to our brothers and sisters in Christ because we recognize that we are all imperfect. We all sin. We all need to repent. And we probably all need to repent more often than we do. At least that's the case for me. We, we want to be a people where confession and repentance is normal, where it is routine and frequent. Because repentance, confession, keeps our hearts soft, keeps us focused on developing in Christ-like character. And to be clear, I am actually very encouraged and challenged by you all as I see this take place in your relationships. I am challenged as I see you confessing sins to one another and asking for forgiveness. I think disciplined confession routine, habitual confession and repentance helps pull us out of this illusion that we alone have it all together. It is a constant reminder, nope, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm still striving to live like Jesus. I'm not there yet. At a conference we attended a couple of weeks ago, Austin and I attended a workshop with Jonathan Martin who was talking about the process of attempting to stay true to your roots, and he was specifically speaking of staying true to your roots in a spiritual context, and he, he made the suggestion in that workshop that any identification with a particular spiritual tradition or an organization or a denomination, that identification must begin with confession. Any identification with an organization or a tradition must 
begin with confession because every tradition, every organization is a messy mix of good and bad. You cannot find a group of people that is perfect. You can't find a perfect church. This certainly is not one. You can't find a perfect small group or a perfect group of friends. So we begin that process with confessing our sin. Unfortunately, I think a lot of times we would rather live, continue to live under the illusion that I've got it all together. That group or that person out there, they have the problem, but I'm doing pretty good for myself. I've heard our present age, this cultural moment that we find ourselves in, I've heard it summed up in this way or described as the woker than thou age. The woker than thou age. So this is a twist on the holier than thou age. A generation or two ago, it was holier than thou. And that turned out to be quite an insidious problem that led to a lot of damage. But this new attitude or, is potentially just as damaging. And really, I think it's the same fundamental attitude or illusion or self-deceit. And it is this, that I am more or less all good. They are more or less all bad. When in reality, we are all a messy mix of both good and bad. A messy mix of holy and yet still struggling against the powers of sin at work in our lives. This is the human predicament. And that's not at all to excuse evil or to excuse sin or injustice. But rather a simple acknowledgement that my best is always incomplete and their worst perhaps isn't the entire picture of who they are. I can't be defined or described entirely, exclusively by my best moments and my best attributes, and they can't be defined or described entirely or exclusively by their worst moments or attributes. And when we buy into that, that highly competitive game, this is what we read from Paul in chapter 5. When we buy into that highly competitive game, whether we prefer the holier-than-thou or the woker-than-thou iteration, we will always end up devouring one another. We will always end up devouring one another because I am above you. I have achieved this level of superiority or this level of faultlessness. And eventually, as Paul suggests in Galatians chapter 5, we ourselves will be devoured. If we buy into that game, if we continue playing that game, we will be devoured as well. Because ultimately, nobody can keep up with those ever-increasing standards. So, let's return to our text from Galatians chapter 5. It began in this way. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is actually the section that our children were learning on Friday night. I love that now we as the adults are learning the same things that they have already learned probably better than us. 
Paul then goes on to argue this. If, we, if you want to suggest, so he's talking about the law and the, the freedom that Christ brings from the law. If you want to suggest that circumcision is still a requirement for faithfulness, you then have to accept the entirety of the law as the means of your justification, and that is going to be a losing scenario. You will end up severed from Christ. You will end up falling away from grace because when you rely on your own ability to achieve some level of moral perfection or faultlessness, you will fail. It severs us from Christ. Then verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Later in the chapter, we read it, he goes on to contrast works of the flesh, and it's a long list that he works through. He contrasts those works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. What makes the presence of the Holy Spirit evident in our lives? Well, he tells us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Anytime I read that list of the fruit of the Spirit, I am immediately reminded of the unending work of character character development that I have ahead of me. Reading through that list of the fruit of the Spirit does not make me assume or think of my supposed perfection because I'm not even close to achieving some level of superiority. There is much work to be done, not in fixing my brother, but in personally, as Paul says, keeping in step with the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit. Verse 25, he concludes in this way. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, thinking that we have it all together. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us keep in step with the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Kevin, if you all want to come up as we prepare to gather around the table of our Lord. I think for too long, and maybe I'm just speaking of myself, maybe some of you as well, for too long and too often, I think we have focused entirely on holding somebody else accountable rather than holding ourselves accountable through the development of our character. So this is my hope and my prayer for you, for me, for us as a congregation. May we be a people who desire excellence. May we be a people who desire and pursue righteousness and justice. May we be a people who genuinely want to and seek to please God, but may we not be consumed with our own rightness, 
May we not be infatuated with our own ability and our own goodness, but rather may we let go of the illusion of perfection so that we might in repentance and humility keep in step with the Spirit. Would you stand this morning? And Stephanie, if you want to join me as we prepare the Eucharistic meal. This morning we are going to respond to everything that has been going on in the service to this point, the prayers, the songs that we have sang together, the scripture reading, the looking into this story in 1 Kings. We're going to respond to what the Spirit of God might be doing in our hearts and our lives, specifically today in this conversation about my supposed perfection and the fact that I'm alone in my righteousness and my faithfulness. And, and we're responding today by coming to the table of the Lord which is a reminder we're all on a level playing field. We're all in this together. We gather around the same table, the same body, the same blood of our Lord, and that fact reminds us that we're in this together. This is not a game where we're trying to compete or devour one another. Instead, we are trying to serve one another and in humility and repentance come to terms with my own character. We invite you to participate in this meal with us. The, the only requirement for, for joining us at the Lord's table is, do you want to respond to the invitation that Christ is extending? Christ is inviting you. I believe that to be true. If you want to come to Jesus, join us around his body and his blood. He's inviting you. Join us. Let me say this prayer. We'll, we'll make two lines down the center aisle. You can come forward when you get to the front. There will be the elements here waiting for you. Myself or Stephanie will say to you, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. This morning we feast around this table. We find sustenance. We find the nourishment we need to keep going. Let me pray for you. Oh God, your never-failing providence sets in order all things, both in heaven and on earth. Put away from us all hurtful things and give us those things that are profitable for us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?